Okay, we're good. It's good to see you. Um, we are going to be continuing our series entitled uh, The King's Letter very briefly. Um, but before I go there, I want to again just thank you for our guests for joining us this evening. We really do hope that you feel at home. Um, I have a brief shout out to make before we get into the word. Um, <coughs> you might know this person as Ndando, but the world now knows him as Joby Clark in a building. Yes. Yes. Okay. Come on. Guys, this, this is my seventh time. This is my seventh time. It's not another time. Ndando, uh, one of our leaders here, just launched the CD. So proud of you. His single is out. And so we're so happy to call you friend before everybody knows you're a celebrity. And we know that you're going to give your tithes. Anyway, now. <laughs> all right. I want to get into the message. Before I get into the message, I want to just speak on a, a very brief issue. Um, in my innermost inner circle, I've got four women in my life. My mom, my sister, my wife, and my daughter. Out of those four ladies, only my daughter has not been abused. There is something grossly wrong with that stat. There is something beyond false with that stat. And as we look at what keeps on happening in our nation, I want to remind you, this is not something new because Facebook has been blowing up over the last two weeks about woman abuse. Now, out of all the issues I have spoken about, social issues that I have spoken about from this platform, this is the one issue that I feel the most ill-equipped to talk about. Because I genuinely feel that as men, we are so far removed from the reality of what women have to go through every single day in our nation. I can honestly tell you that I don't know what it feels like at 8 o'clock in the evening to not want to go to the garage because something might happen to me. I don't know what it feels like to be at work and feel like the only way I can go up the ladder is if I give favors. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like to be harassed by a, a husband who claims to love you and every single day feel like you have to watch what you say because you might be beat by someone who confessed his love for you. I don't know what that feels like. I might have grown up in a, in a home where I was present, but I was never the recipient of that kind of pain, of that kind of agony. If there's an area that I feel as men, whether you're a Christian or not, that we have failed women, it is in this area. That we have honestly lacked the empathy and the understanding and the anger that we should have given long ago before Facebook blew it up. To stand with the people who we claim to love. And I deeply apologize for my lack of empathy but also, I would like to think most men in this room apologize just as much. And it's really hard to convey in a complex situation what you ought to do, whether it be, is it a, a male or a female. But I want to give you three pointers. But before I do that, I love Paul and how he addresses how men should treat women. And he does it so well, so profoundly. Those of you who don't know Paul, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he says something so simple yet so profound when you think about it. He says, men, 
Treat women who are younger than you as though they are your sisters. And treat women who are older than you as though they are your mothers and treat them in purity. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you have, biological, you have a biological sister and you love them and you try and protect them and you try and make sure that all the goodness that life can give them comes to them. But when you see a stranger, you lust after them. Paul says that doesn't make sense in light of the gospel. He says now in light of the gospel, when you have a biological sister you, you, and you see a stranger in church who's a Christian, you treat that person as your sister because now they are in the same family because you have the same father. So you treat them in the same loving care that you would your own biological sister. And, he, and he even implied in that is this. That even though a lady might not be a Christian, what we should do as brothers in Christ is that we should treat them in such a way that even though they might not know Christ, they might feel the safety and the love of our God. The gospel changes everything as to how you and I should relate to one another. It defines how men should treat women regardless of what place they come from, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of of, of, of background, regardless of power or authority. Because of the gospel, we treat differently. And so I want to implore you with three very basic things before I get into the word. One, if you're here and you are a woman and you are being abused, you are in an abusive relationship, I am pleading with you to speak up. I am pleading with you to find help. And if you don't know how to find the help you need, let us help you find the help that you need. If you're here and you're a man and you're abusing your wife or your girlfriend or your sister or your mother or whoever it might be or your colleague, you need help. I implore you to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. And also, even if you have, I implore you to find help. Let us help you find that help. Point one. Point two, I want to encourage all of us to pray. Now, there is something, I'm going to say this and I apologize if it sounds wrong. There is a statement that's been flying around of late that angers me a little bit. In fact, I'm a bit annoyed by it. And here's the statement. Oh, no, no, the church uh, uses prayer as a cop-out not to act on stuff. It, it, it bothers me because it shows me the understanding you have of prayer. Let me explain it to you this way. It is, it is not normal. That you can love your mom and rape your daughter. It is diabolical, demonic at best. And so you can't bring a cat to a lion fight. You can't assume that somehow you can deal with that level of demonic realm by just saying a few words. By just standing up and saying no to this, no to that. It has gone beyond what you and I have the means to do. And so the only way we can rock up to the fight is we need to match the fight with something that can actually defeat it. Yeah. And prayer, for those who have an understanding of the kind of God we are praying to, understand yeah. that when we pray, we are functioning on a level that is beyond what our minds or our, our means can do. And so I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you. This is why we are praying every week, Friday, uh, for the next couple of weeks. I'm appealing to you that your view of prayer changes. I met with my boy this week, Friday morning, Stefan, and he said so, something so powerful to me. 
I mean, I've always said to me, when you pray, you know, God sometimes changes the situations around you, but he, mostly he changes you. And I love what he said to me. Here's what he said. He said, listen, if you pray for a particular situation like woman abuse, not only does God change your heart, but he changes your heart about woman abuse. In other words, all of a sudden when you spend time pouring yourself out in prayer about this particular issue, you are positioned to act from the wisdom and the power of his presence. He, he imputes not just his person, but he imputes his compassion on you that your action can actually be filled with something beyond your reason. I'm appealing to you that you pray. You pray for your kids. You know how terrible it is when I look at the state of my life that I have to think consistently, is my daughter safe wherever she is? That is ridiculous. Lastly, men, I want to appeal to you to be good men. Be good men. You're not a good man if you are good to those who like you. You're not a good man if you are good to some but not good to others. The grace of God is placed upon your life so that his goodness can be made known to all. It, it genuinely isn't about you, I promise. I promise you. It genuinely is about his glory. That the way you are as a man reflects something of God the Father that other people have not experienced. I'm appealing men that we become good men. And if you haven't been one before tonight, let this be the night that you make that decision, you draw that line, and you cross that line and become that good man. So I'm going to pray, but also I want to invite um, ladies. Some of you might not be comfortable with this request, but I'm going to put it out there, and I think it will really be of help. At the back, through those sliding doors, immediately on your right, I have put some papers out. I've only thought of this idea this morning, okay? I've put some papers out there, and I think what could really, really help us as men is the following. As you think of your environment, your workplace, your home, your community, the fact that every day you walk in the streets and you need to be mindful of those guys screaming your name and trying to get your number and trying to pull you on the side of the road. Did I ever tell you the story of my wife driving in four ways? She stopped at a stop sign and she, my kids were in the back seat. And this guy in the street decided to open the door and he sat in the back seat. Sat in the back seat. Now, my wife is saved partly. <laughs> Her partly not saved side came out. I'm joking. My wife is wholly saved. The guy came in and my wife stopped the car and she said, no, get out. No, no, I'm not driving until you get out. Get out. Get out. And he's like, no, 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 just take me to McDonald's. It's like, Chris, no, get out. Get out now. Get out. Get out. Right? Now, when she told me the story, I told her what I always tell her. I always tell you, lock the doors to the car. <laughs> Secondly, are you okay? <laughs> anyway, so here's what I'm asking to do. There are things that you feel in your home, in your workplace, in your, in your environments that we as men don't understand. And I'm asking you to help us help you. I'm asking you to help us to be the kind of men that create safe places, not just for you, but for other women in our environments. So, those papers at the back write one or two things that you're saying, this is how men 
can help create a safe environment for me. In your particular context, don't just think of at church, I would like you to do this. Think of your husband. Think of your colleagues. Just write two things. And what we're going to do, I'm going to take all that information. One, I'm going to send it out to our citywide leaders. And secondly, we're going to send it out to all the men in our church through our men's inbox. And the appeal through that is that hopefully those guys can send that out to other people to say, hey, by the way, you don't need to write your name on it. Just to create a sense of awareness of, hey, this is how we can be good men. I'm appealing you to please do it. Lord, help us. Help us in this regard. Lord, we are in desperate need for you to reveal your kingdom continuously through us in this nation. Lord, I appeal that even tonight you would work in our hearts. Allow us, Lord, to feel beyond what we just know, to feel what the people around us, what the ladies around us go through. Allow us to have empathy as men that moves us to action. I pray for those who have been abused that they would be feeling that comes to their souls, Lord God forgiveness that frees them from the shackles that have bound them to those relationships. And Lord, we ask as men, we ask for your forgiveness. We repent for our lack of courage in this regard, for our lack of awareness in this regard. And Lord, we ask for your grace to flood over us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Got 30 minutes, I think, maybe 20 minutes. The king's letter, we are in Song of Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. And we are looking at what it means to be devoted to Jesus. I've entitled this message, Decisions of Devotion. Decisions of Devotion. Now, <clears throat> Song of Songs is a beautiful book. It, it, it is originally written as a romantic poem between a man and a woman. And it's meant to be read as such. It, you're meant to read the book in that way. Uh, some years ago, my wife and I watched a, a teaching on the Song of Solomon. Needless to say, 12 months later, we had a baby. Now, it's very important. If you are married, I'm asking you to read this book, meditate on this book, and practice it. It is good for you. It is good for your spouse. And it is holy. And pleasing unto the Lord. I'm serious. All right? So read it as such. But also, the, the imagery in this book is not just to teach us about romance, but it's also to teach us about the king, King Jesus, who is reflected as King Solomon, his pursuit of us as the church, which is reflected as the Shulamite uh, maiden, and also the, the church's pursuit and passion for the king. And so it's so critical for us that we read this book and realize that God wants to interact with us beyond mere knowledge. But he really wants to have an experience with us that touches our souls, that actually moves our emotion and not just enlightens our minds. So the mic is going through a bit of demonic phase. I'm going to change this up. So we're going to be on Song of Songs, chapter 3. Now, I want to give you a bit of context. Let me read the text and I'll give you a bit of context afterwards. 
Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 2 to 4. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Then the watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. The context of this particular chapter is that in chapter 1, King Solomon, King Jesus is trying to allure the church and let them know, man, this is what I think about you. And in chapter 1, uh, this Shulamite lady says, no, no, I, I am too dark. I've been burnt by the sun. I'm not as beautiful as you say that I am. And my hands are callous because I've been working hard jobs. And so I am not that hot, just that I've been burnt by the sun. Look at my skin. And, and, he, and the king says, no, 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 you are beautiful. You are fair to me. I love this chapter. Because from the get-go of Song of Solomons, we are reminded that you and I don't have the capacity to define whether or not we are beautiful. You can't define for yourself based on a mirror, based on culture, if you are beautiful enough for the king. He is the only one who knows you enough to define for you who you are in such a way that you can surrender freely to his words, only if you choose to. From the onset, we get this realization that as humans, we lack the capacity to know what true beauty is, that he's the only one who sees beyond our now, who sees beyond our past, and who pierces his eyes into our future. And when he speaks to us, his words don't just last for a moment, but they stand in eternity. That when he says, you are this, you remain what he said you are. And it is your choice by faith to believe his words and allow by faith to actually experience what he has said about you all along. Chapter 1, that's just an easy one. He goes to chapter 2, King King is leaping over the mountains. Now, he's already tried to allure her, but she's saying, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not beautiful enough. And now she says, I see my king leaping through the mountains, and he's coming towards me, and he's alluring me. And this is a chapter that Pastor Roger preached on so well last week. And he says, come away with me. Let's, let's come away. Your winter is gone. The, the past is no more. Come away with me, and let's go experience the blossoms of the new season. And she acknowledges how beautiful he is, but she stays at home. And so now in chapter 3, she is trying to sleep. The first verse, which I didn't read for you. She's trying to sleep, but she can't because she's tossing and turning and wishing that he was around. And until verse 2, she goes, I am tired of tossing and turning. Even though it is night, I am going to go to the city and I'm going to go to the streets that I know. And I'm going to go to the squares that I know to go find him. The first decision that you need to make in devotion is simply this. Daily bread will always be better than seasonal outpouring. Daily bread will always be better than seasonal outpouring. When my wife and I got married, I gave her a beautiful ring. 
It was very beautiful, so beautiful, she lost it six months within our marriage. It has been eight, how, how long have we been? I know you repented, but you need to repent publicly. <laughs> that, that's how expensive the ring was. Um, we've been married nine years now. Yes. For the last, since then, she has never had another ring. But watch what has happened. It is not the experience of the moment that has kept our love going. It is the daily everyday kind of love stuff when you don't look good, when you don't smell great, when you don't feel awesome. It is that kind of love that has moved our love from I will commit to you for the rest of, the of my life to I so love committing to you every single day. It is the daily bread that not only sustains your walk with God but ultimately builds it. You see, when seasonal outpouring comes into your life, you will not know how to sustain it if you haven't built the bridge of daily living with him. It will come and it will go, and you will live the rest of your life going from service to service, hoping that someone will sing your song so that you can feel the way that you need to feel in order to do the right thing. You will move from conference to conference, from Beth Moore book to Beth Moore book, until a time that your soul breaks because it cannot match up to the demand of the day-to-day. -day. The day-to-day -day stuff. Shulamite lady, Nadab, stood up, and what did she do? She went to the places she always went to. If you're not used to going to the Word, if you're not used to going to prayer, if you're not used to going to community, when the dark night of the soul comes, you won't know what to do. But this lady was so used to the streets. She was so used to the squares. She knew exactly where to go, even though it was dark. When it's dark in your life, do you know where to go? Do you know where to go? Daily bread will always be better than seasonal outpouring. I want to interpret Solomon with Solomon in Proverbs 13. Here's what he says. He's speaking about money, but the principle applies in your relationship with God. He says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You see, many times when we read the word or when we are praying, in that particular moment, we don't feel anything. We don't see anything. We, we assume that somehow we have to see something in order to affirm our souls that what we are doing is working. But there wouldn't be any point of faith. There wouldn't be any point of faith. And so it is imperative that we continue reading every single day, continue praying every single day because we know the word comes with compound interest. I wish Andrew LaRue was preaching. He would break down what compound interest is. He's an actuary. I'm a preacher man. I only know compound, and compound means yay, awesome. <laughs> Unless if it's compound debt. I don't know if that exists, but yay, that would be bad. But listen, the word comes with compound interest. The more word you get in you, ultimately, the more word that leaks out of you. <clears throat> and it's so vital that we become Daily lovers of Jesus, not seasonal lovers of Jesus.
in his book, Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards says this. I love it. He says, men will trust in God no further than they know him. The place of relationship is in the daily. If you only see your wife or your friend once every six months, it's very hard to know the reality of their souls, to know what burns in their hearts. If you want to trust God, you need to craft the discipline of knowing him every single day. Sometimes it's hard. We have kids, we have friends, we have demands, we have all these things. But I'm telling you now, you know, whenever we preach sermons like this, most of the time we always walk away with a sense of guilt. And I'm appealing to you, don't walk away with guilt. Walk away with a sense of hunger because his invitation still stands for you to come and get the more of him. And though we are busy, we've always trained ourselves to prioritize those things that are important. It doesn't matter how busy we are. We'll make time for that CD launch. We'll make time. We'll make time to look good. We'll make time to do what seems important. Just your mindset regarding what is important. Don't assume that the Bible is a good add-on to make you a better person. Assume that the Bible is necessary for you to live. It is your daily bread. Without it, you cannot live at least the life that you've been called to live. Decision number two that we must make if we are to be a devoted people is this. God's hiddenness is an invitation, not a punishment. God's hiddenness is an invitation, not a punishment. Now, there's places in the Old Testament where God would punish those who continuously rebelled by removing his presence. But that is only because that they had hardened his, their hearts before God. They were rebellious. After many opportunities of repentance, they chose to reject him, reject his love and his life. And so as a result, he removed, just like what Paul said, that those people who refused to repent, released them to their deeds. So that hopefully in their uh, bad deeds, they will find mercy. The only reason that God removed his presence is so that they could see what life was like without him. That's why the Israelites came crying back. We're sorry. Please, 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 you know, come back. We realize what a lack of your presence means for us. But in this particular instance, that's not what's happening with the Shulamite maiden. She loves him. She's, the, the, the next verse says she sought after him, but she couldn't find him. Have you ever felt like you can't find God? You know the streets, you know the squares, and you went to them, and he wasn't there. My kids like to play hide and seek. Now, my son is two, so his understanding of hide and seek is that my, my daughter must always hide in the exact same place that she hid before. And he has a meltdown when he can't find her in the same cupboard that she was in last time. I, I was thinking about that yesterday, and before I, was, I, I laughed, I realized, man, that's me. The amount of times I go, okay, Lord, you know I'm trying to get you now, right? So, you know how it is. I'm going to read one and a half chapters. Then I'm going to pray in tongues for five minutes, and then I'm going to say, come. And then you're going to come. No, no, 
And then he, then he doesn't come. Then I'm walking around grumpy and I'm upset. Then I start having these thoughts in my mind of sinful things I did 10 years ago that now I'm starting to repent about again now. Oh, Lord, I told you I'm sorry. Sorry for what I, I'm so sorry, you know. And we assume that somehow he's punishing us. When I punish, you know, when I discipline my kids, I always make sure that they know that I'm present. I, I don't discipline my kids by locking the door and leaving them for an hour to themselves. Coming back and go, all right, are you going to obey now? That would get me in jail very quickly. That's not how God disciplines us. In fact, the idea of God disciplining us shows us that we are sons. Shows us that we are daughters. That he wants to be close enough with us to allow his discipline to be crafted within the environment of love. That we don't assume discipline to be apart from his presence. So like the Shulamite maiden, we want to know that man, his hiddenness is more of an invitation to us for more of his presence rather than punishment. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but this is awesome, but the glory of kings, that is you and me, to search things out. It is to our glory that we search things out. John Balchin says it so beautifully. He says, oh, the joy of finding. Isn't it awesome? When you find something that your heart has been treasuring, that feeling that comes into your soul, that joy of finding that thing that you love. Now, let me explain to you. In fact, Isaiah 45 says this. Oh, Israel, our God, the God of Israel, hides himself. He hides himself. Why does God hide himself? Here's why. Ultimately, when we get saved, God manifests himself to us so much. We are inundated with his presence. Wherever we go, it feels like he's talking to us. Things are happening. It's great. How many of you have ever experienced that kind of feeling, right? The more we start following him, all of a sudden, what used to be a loud voice lessens in its volume. The only reason is not to say you've done something wrong. It is to train you to move closer. Because if you only hear God on the same decibel level, you will stay in exactly the same place. You will not move. And he quietens his voice as to draw you closer to the more. The more you draw closer, it might feel harder, but it ultimately changes something in you. And that you learn how to hear his voice even when he's not loud. You see, if you don't know how to hear his voice when he's not loud, you will panic in, pre in times of pressure. And so what does he do? He quietens his voice to train you for the season of victory that you need to go into. You can't win until you've been trained. The reason why he hides himself is that he's trying to tell you there are levels to me. You can't just stay in one level. I, I, I want to draw you closer to me. I want you to experience more and more of my fullness, more and more of my pleasure, more and more of my glory. So come, come, 
Don't stay there. Don't be content with just your everyday rhythm. Press in to him and get more of him. The last point, the last decision that you need to make in order to live devoted is this. My soul will find its greatest satisfaction in Jesus. Three decisions. This is very critical. My soul will find its greatest satisfaction in Jesus. In Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 4, he eventually finds him. She's gone, she's gone out into the streets, and she's approached by the watchmen, and as she's asking them about uh, her lover, he appears behind him, and then the Bible says in verse 4, uh, the second part of verse 4, that he holds him, and he doesn't let him go until. Man, when I was at home, I thought that was profound. Have you ever held him until? It says he, that he held, she held him until he was, she was able to bring him into, his, into her mother's house. His mother, her mother's house speaks of a place of security that you wouldn't allow just anyone to come into. She held him until she came into the depth of her place, the, 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 the place of her most vulnerability. She held him until she, he could come into that, most, into that most vulnerable place where her mom used to nurse her. Now, what I loved about this passage of scripture is this, that ultimately we can read the word daily, we can press in for the more of God, but there are times, there are times where we have to train our souls to find our greatest satisfaction in Jesus by learning to drop everything. Now, this is not going to be easy for a lot of you, but sometimes it must make sense as Christians that there are times where we drop absolutely everything and we just go and behold his face. David puts it like this. One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon or to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David is saying, hey, I dropped everything and I went to the temple and I just beheld him. After I had beheld him, then I asked him for stuff. You see, if you're going to train your soul to be satisfied with the richest affair, which is Jesus, you have to go beyond just your daily reading. You have to go beyond just your, I want more. You actually have to hold him until he enters those deep parts of your soul that you have never led people into. And that can only happen through deep meditation, through time in his presence that you have had to sacrifice other things for. Have you ever heard the saying, people take their they work home? Now, explain to me, how is it possible that when we have deadlines, we take our work home, we burn the midnight oil, we are sleepless in Seattle in bed just trying to figure out, oh man, how am I going to meet this deadline? 
We tell our friends, hey, homie, I can't make this arrangement because I've got a deadline. We, there's all these wonderful, we're going to go watch rugby. No, I can't come. I need to meet this deadline. Forgetting that there is a deadline in our lives as, as to how much of God we can experience while we're on this side. And somehow we forget that we actually have the capacity to be obsessed with things. But is it abnormal to be obsessed with his presence? To be, to be so enthralled, so captivated with God that we burn the midnight oil praying, reading his word. That we take him home. That we say no to social gatherings because we are just trying to be captivated, to behold his presence. Is it, is it so abnormal that we can't at least even try to do it? The only way he can move from this level to this level is when we get deep in our meditation. Deep times of unhurried uninterrupted times with God where we wrestle with who he says he is to us and we allow his revelation to affect us and move us deeply. Not just be content with just the revelation. She found him, but it wasn't enough just to find him. It's not enough just to find Jesus. We need to hold on to him until he comes into that place in our souls. I want to end with this point. As we close, Luke 10, don't have the scripture up here. In fact, this, this was some good scripture before I go there. Proverbs 15 verse 17, a bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. I love it. Here, here's, what Sol, uh, here's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, my vegetables only taste good because I'm with you. I don't care what I'm eating. If I'm with you, it makes sense. When I'm with you, everything seems okay. I don't care whether I'm having vegetables or steak or peanut butter and jam sandwich, which is so heavenly. You are with me. And it makes it all good. Philippians 1 verse 21. Paul says exactly the same thing about being captivated, being obsessed with Jesus. He says, for to me... To live is Christ amplified. He is my source of joy, my reason to live. And to die is gain, amplified. For I will be with him in eternity. He is completely captivated by Jesus. Not because he is a pastor, but because he is a disciple. Not because he is a pastor, but because he is enthralled with the lover of his soul. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, says this. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a dis distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. So in other words, champ, can you stand for me? <coughs> Sorry. Those who are listening over recording, something's happening. Don't worry about it. Can you just stand there? All right. There are stuff that want more attention. Some are sinful, some are not sinful, some are good, some are important. And for as long as I keep my eye here, I will stay here. And my level of satisfaction will be determined by, by what this gives me. 
If it's good, I'm happy and I'm satisfied. If it's bad, I'm feeling low and I'm feeling depressed. But in the midst of all this stuff calling for me, tangling on me like, like, like ropes tied to my body, the only way I can find a greater satisfaction is if I behold. And the more I behold, the more grace I get to move forward. The more forward I move, the more bondages I break from the things that are trying to hold me back. But for as long as I behold, I will keep on moving. The moment I stop beholding, I go back to the things that keep on alluring me every single day. The pressures of life, the desires of man, the need for wealth, the need for affirmation. But the moment I stop and I behold, I am pulled into his presence. The satisfaction of his glory is more important to me than the satisfaction of this world. Thank you. You are awesome. The more satisfied we are with him, the more dissatisfied we are with the things of the world. I'm really ending now, I promise you. Luke 10 tells a story of the rich. And I read it again last night, and it moved me quite deeply, to be honest. It might not move you the same way, but I hope at least it challenges you to think. Luke 10 tells a story of Mary and Martha. Jesus has just come to the neighborhood. And he goes and he spends time with them. He's chilling. And as he comes in, Mary, Martha goes to the kitchen and he starts making some sandwiches with some dry crust. And he's ready to go and serve Jesus. But he sees that Mary is lying at the feet of Jesus. And so she gets upset. And normally I've always looked at the scripture and I thought she was getting upset because why is Mary getting to do, you know, the, the nice thing? That's not why she's getting upset. She's not even jealous of Mary. She's upset because culturally they were taught that when a person of honor comes in, this is how you should act in order to reflect honor to that individual. And so the only way as women we are supposed to reflect honor to this individual who's walked into the house is that we are supposed to be in that kitchen preparing something, getting ready to serve him so that we can demonstrate the admiration we have. So she's in the kitchen and she's frustrated because in her mind she thinks Mary is dishonoring Jesus. But what happened is that she didn't dishonor Jesus. When Jesus walked in, Mary was so captivated, she lost all sense of culture. She couldn't think about what culture demands her to do. She couldn't fathom the reality of what Culture has told her she needs to do in order to reflect on her. The only thing she could do because of her captivation was to go to his knees, go to his feet, and behold his glory. There must be times, friends, when we drop everything. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love you. I love the fact that God has called me to do what I do. But every now and again, now and again I have to drop all of that. I have to drop all of it. And it must make sense in our rhythms. That we spend times when there's no one else around. There's no phone. There's no kid. There's no wife. There's no friend. There's no need to be affirmed. It's us and him. There's no one else. Because we are captivated. We are captivated. And if you know that you're not captivated, drop all things so that you can be. So that you can be. Lord, I got to close. Half past six. Lord, thank you 
that you pursued us before we even pursued you. I, I feel, Lord, your, your grace over us to come deeper into your presence. And Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us in here who are longing for that kind of relationship, that we would pursue it, that we would be affirmed tonight that it is possible and it is ours as a form of inheritance and that we only need to just take it.